Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittleman. This is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today on the show, my interview is with Laura Anderson. Laura just won the Buffalo Marathon in a time of 2.57. She absolutely killed it. This is her first postpartum marathon. She gave birth last year and uh, she just had one heck of a weekend. And as I just mentioned, this is the running, this is the running podcast for all the people who are trying to balance running with the rest of their lives. And that's exactly what Laura was able to do. Laura works two, two jobs. She has a young daughter and she's running at just an unbelievable level. And it's just such an inspiring story. And we dive into her running past. We touch on a bunch of topics and Laura's expertise and her candor led to just a wonderful, wonderful interview. I uh, I couldn't be more grateful for her coming on the show just a few days after uh, after this unbelievable race. So I'm not going to talk any more in this intro. I'm just going to dive right in because you're not here to listen to me. You're here to listen to Laura Anderson. So here she is, my interview with 2018 Buffalo Marathon winner, Laura Anderson. Hello, Laura, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Hi. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm excited. I've been listening for a while, so it's fun to now be a guest on the show. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you for doing that. I know one of your good friends, Heather Zuba, was on the show a couple months back. Yes, she was. Yeah, she and uh, not only that, but both of you kicked some serious butt this weekend up in Buffalo. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm going to brag for her because she won't brag enough about the fact that she dropped a, like, over-a-minute PR in the 5K. Seriously, like, I just wish I could have been there for it, but I wasn't able to. But she just kicked ass. Yeah, so she was here like, 6.15 mile pace for the 5K, something like that? 6.12, 6.15, something like that. But it was huge, and she just – she did it, and that was awesome. That was – I mean, shoot, getting any kind of PR – it's like even if like one second, that's such an accomplishment. But taking a minute off of a five k is insane. Exactly. That's awesome. And then actually, she was um trying to chase down Brooks Brooke Adams, another yeah. upstate New Yorker who's been on the show. Yeah, I think uh, James had them running kind of near each other for the first mile, and then after the race, Heather texted me and she's like. I could see Brooke when I finished, like it dawned on her that, Hey, yeah, I can keep up with these people. Like one of these days, her confidence will actually start kicking in more to where it should be. Oh, good point. Yeah. Cause anyone who, cause anyone who's follows Heather can see the talent, which you know, so many people have. Um, but you're right. Sometimes the, sometimes it's harder for us to see our own talent than it is for us, maybe some of our friends or family to see it. Oh, absolutely. And then that, that brings us to you. Laura, who <laughs> ran a 2.57 marathon uh, to win the Buffalo Marathon. Um, I mean, that is just so awesome. I was talking to you a second ago before we started uh, before we started the show, and I, like, was awestruck when I opened up my phone. I just kind of scrolled through Instagram real quick. And actually, I shouldn't say scrolled because it was the first picture that popped up. It was you taking, I think it was a left-hand turn, close to the finish line and just letting out a primal scream like your whole body was like flexing and tense as you were running and just like you know this primal scream you can just tell it was a picture not a video but i could just imagine it kind of like 
it like gave me goosebumps looking at it. Like, can you remember that exact moment of the race? I can. Um, there's a couple little turns in the last like quarter mile. You go around this traffic circle and then you have to do this little out and back section. You go back around the circle and then you take this final turn to go down into the chute. And, you know, I had been running super hard, especially that last like quarter mile. The, um, the cyclist with me was, you know, screaming at me, how bad do you want it? And I was, I was already running really hard, but I was like waiting still to get to that last turn when I could see it to just go. And I made that last turn and it got like deafening loud. And I just let out the biggest F-bomb ever. <laughs> and it felt so good. You know, it's, it's a release to just like let it out. And I finally saw the clock. You know, I took the lead at 20. And after that, I never looked at my watch. I didn't care about the time anymore. I just said, don't get past. So I really had no idea what my time was going to be. So when I finally was able to see the clock, see the finish line, see the tape, it was like this moment of an F-bomb was the only thing that seemed fitting. <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful. So did you, uh, was that just an instinctual thing or did you kind of like, all right, I'm going to let this fly? Oh, no, it was totally just an, an instinctual thing, which is really funny because now that I have a toddler, I'm, I'm actually pretty good about not dropping that word, um, considering one of her first words was shit. Um, <laughs> we apparently are not as good about that one, but we are really good about not saying the F word. So the fact that it just came out of my mouth in that moment made me laugh, but it was it just came out and it just happened. And I said it quite a few times in that last few hundred yards before the finish. And I laughed while I was saying it. Cause it was like, this is happening. That is unbelievable. So you, so you ditched the watch after you, after you made the pass at 20, were you aware of your gap between you and second place over the last couple of miles? Never. Um, around 24, I saw my Virgin elite teammates. And I remember looking at my friend, Eric, because they're screaming at me, you're in the lead, you're doing awesome, you look strong, you got to hold this. And I looked at him and I, I said, can you see her? And I remember saying it twice, can you see her? And they all just yelled, no, go. So I didn't know if they were lying to me. I didn't know anything, but it was like, okay, I've got a little over two miles. They can't see her right now. And it was kind of a straight stretch of road. So they would have probably been able to. And I was texting with him after the race. And he said, after that point, he looked at his watch and he timed it. And at 24, I had almost a minute and 20 second lead. And then when I finished, I beat the second girl by about two minutes. Wow. So that last two miles, I, I mean, the last two miles were my fastest of the day, especially the last quarter mile. So, I mean, I just the instinct took over to race instead of the clock. I was racing the field. Now you've won other races before. How does this, how did this compare over the last couple miles versus some of your other wins? Um, well, I've never won a marathon before. So that was a first. Um, right. And for me, that means more than a lot of the others because the marathon is my favorite distance. Um, to be honest, I was terrified because when I took the lead, I probably spent about two miles going, what do I do? 
I don't know how to lead a marathon. I shouldn't be winning this thing. And I kind of had almost like talked myself out of it. Like, why are you in the lead right now? And had to like go to the positive talk of, hell yeah, you're leading. Okay, just don't get past. Um, So there was a lot of mental games in the last few miles. But I mean, to to have my first marathon win on what I consider a hometown course is huge. I mean, so many friends and family there. And, you know, I've taken, I've won races and I've placed second in a couple marathons. And I think back and say, you know, if I had won those, it would have been great. But I don't think anything would have compared to this to be around so many friends and family on you know, a course that I've done before, a course that I know in a city that, like, I absolutely love. Like, we're diehard Buffalo sports fans. Most of my family is in the Buffalo area. So to, it wasn't just the win. It was where the win came and how it happened of my first postpartum marathon. It was kind of like the perfect storm of it, there really wasn't anything that could have gone better. That is fantastic. And I, I have never been in the situation that you're describing, you're like making, <laughs> making the pass at 20 and all of a sudden you're in the lead. So how much of your, you mentioned you have like some mental gymnastics were going on coming down the stretch in the last 10 K. How much of it was you literally and metaphorically like thinking about what was behind you kind of like looking backwards versus looking forwards. You know, I spent probably 20 to 22 really like battling of what am I doing? How do, how do I lead a marathon? What am I supposed to be doing right now? Um, like, and, did you pass? Did you pass because the other woman slowed down or did you speed up at the pass? So, and I actually do feel bad, like with this part of I entered Delaware Park at mile 17 and I was in third. And by the time I left the park the first time, because you kind of loop back to it, I'd come around this one curve before you exit the park. And one of the girls who was leading earlier was walking. And I instantly felt bad because I know she's like a low 250 marathoner. You know, I never want to see somebody have a bad day. Like, yes, I'm grateful that I was able to push forward and win and that I had a strong day. But at the same time, it still sucks that somebody out there, a fellow runner, had a bad day. So seeing her walking was, I felt, I felt for her um, and passed her. And then when I got up to 20 and I saw the girl in the lead, she was also having a rough day. So she was stopping, walking, and I think she actually ended up not finishing Whoa. Um, the girl that I passed at 20 to take the lead. I don't, I'm not sure if she finished, so I'm, I don't know. Um, but she was also kind of doing a walk run at that point. So I don't know if, you know, they didn't adjust enough for the conditions. You can't, you just, you never know. You can only control what you do. And I started a little bit more conservatively and, maybe something else happened. We'll just never know. Like, I don't want to like sit here and criticize how they ran, not by any means. Cause I, I feel for people. I've been that person walking in the late stages of a race and it sucks. We all know that. Um, so it was, it was weird passing them to take that because 
it wasn't like I was passing them and we were both running. Like it wasn't like I surged to do it. I just maintained my speed and they fell back. Right. Well, this, I can, I can completely understand where you're coming from. It's not exactly how you envision it. And like you're, you know, like you're, say you're, you know, meditating or you're visualizing or you're dreaming of like, okay, I make the pass and we battle it out. And then I, you know, I'm victorious and, you know, and then you, you know, then then you drop the F-bomb and you cross us to the finish line, you know, but um, I totally hear what you're saying, but, but also due respect, this was your first postpartum marathon. Like there was a very real possibility (laughs) six months ago when you were planning this out that that could have been you. So, Oh, absolutely. So maybe that's why I felt bad. Um, that, and you just never know, even if you're a seasoned runner, you have those days, you just, you don't know how your body will respond on that given day and it happens and it sucks. So yeah, it definitely wasn't what I envisioned. It wasn't like some Duke out battle where we're like fighting and going back and forth, you know? So it was kind of like almost anticlimactic in that way when I did pass those women, um, because I wasn't passing women who were having it that were on their game. You know, if right. they were on their game, it would have been a much different story. I'm not saying I couldn't have passed them, but it, it certainly would have been more interesting. Um, so I feel for them, but at the same time, I'm really proud of the way I was able to run because that's all you can control. Like you can't control who shows up. This race, this race is usually won by women who run anywhere between 238 and 250. So this was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a slower time, but they have had a couple of years ago in 255 one. Sometimes it's been over three. You just never know, but you have to take the day that you're given. And I adjusted for the conditions. I controlled what I could and I ran my own race. And on that day, I was the fastest person that showed up and gave it what I could. There it is, man. You just said it all right there. That is really, I'm, I'm excited. I'm like about putting my brain close. Um, but you know, this is your so this is your first postpartum marathon, and as you mentioned before, that you know it's it, it is so individualized. You never know what's going to happen on race day. Even the best runners struggle. Which for someone like me, it's so interesting to hear someone who's you know like you just mentioned the person you passed at mile 17 or 18. And she's a low 250 marathoner. Like I've, I've had to walk in marathons. So it's so interesting that someone who's almost an hour faster than me has to do the same thing on occasion. Um, so just to go back a few months, what was the postpartum running like for you? And I mean that from a physical, mental, and emotional perspective, because while certainly I've never given birth, <laughs> it's so interesting when you hear it, it's a common theme for runners, right? So like you see the running population, so many runners, this is part of their running life and they have to cycle through this once, twice, three times, or sometimes even more. And as generalized as it can be, it's such an individualistic thing, not only from person to person, but from pregnancy to pregnancy. So how did you navigate that, um, navigate those months uh, physically, mentally, and emotionally? So it was kind of a whirlwind because I did not run most of my pregnancy. I opted to take the time off. I had been training so hard for years. I ran 14 marathons between 2011 and 2016. Um, 
So I really embraced the downtime. So that made my return to running a little bit different than women say who ran all the way through. Um, I, my last run, I believe was in like February. I had my daughter in April and I didn't even start running again until June. So I haven't even been running again for a full year. Um, I waited, I had an emergency C-section with Hannah about five weeks early. So I was even more cautious on my return because I did have a major surgery and, they do legitimately cut right through all, any muscles that you have in your stomach. And it was very humbling, even just trying to sit up, let alone to think about running. Um, I did start running about seven or eight weeks after she was born, but I did a lot of walking uh, those first few weeks with her, which I think made a big difference. I was, I've always been kind of a run before you walk type of a person, but this was one thing where I kind of wanted to approach it differently and literally walked before I ran. I did a lot of walking each week, put Hannah in the stroll for me to get out during maternity leave and also kind of handle the emotional hellstorm that postpartum can be. Uh, I did not struggle with postpartum depression, but I did develop what is kind of lesser talked about, newly defined as uh, postpartum OCD. It's, it's terrifying. Uh, there's a lot more anxiety that goes along with it. I had kind of prepared myself for PPD, so to have it be different and manifest as anxiety and OCD was something new I had to really deal with. What were, so getting out, yeah, what were some of the things that really, um, that were, that kind of, were, how did the OCD manifest itself in your daily activities? Um, everybody's kind of different when it comes to this. For me, it surrounded the fact, everything surrounded Hannah. So I was constant, it was the obsession with something going wrong. Um, for some women, it's the fear of their kid drowning or dropping or, you know, those, those instinctual fears that every parent has, but it, it tends to take over. For me, um, sleep is a big one. I, you know, constantly checking her at the car seat. The car seat still terrifies me. Um, I have to check it a few times before we're able to go anywhere. I actually had a panic attack while driving with her one of the first times I drove by myself with her because she was so little and I, she was asleep and I couldn't tell that she was breathing. And it's one of the most terrifying things in the world. And I was going over a very busy bridge, uh, the Bay Bridge in Rochester here, and had to pull over shortly after the bridge because I was legitimately having a panic attack because I couldn't tell if she was breathing. And it's, there's no other way to put it than it's just terrifying. So it's the constant need to check on her or, you know, it sounds like it's just simple parenting. Like some people have kind of tried to downplay it to me and say, well, no, that's just being a parent. And it's kind of hard to explain though. Um, it's just a constant overwhelming feeling. And for me, I had to really take the time to go outside, take time for me kind of give in to the compulsions a little bit of checking her car seat and things like that, but also limit myself. Okay, I checked her car seat three times. Now I can get in the car and drive. Or, okay, I've checked on her three times in her crib. 
now I can just lay down and look at the monitor, but I don't have to get up and check on her. You have to kind of learn to limit those things a little bit. And when I started running again, running was actually the only time that I found I wasn't anxious. So that actually kind of helped me start running again. And even if it was only 20, 30 minutes at a time, it made a difference and made me feel like that brought me, you know, 20, 30 minutes of peace. Because as soon as I stopped, it was instantly worried that something would happen to her again. And when did, when did you feel like your, your core strength after the C-section started to return? Um, I think I had regained actually kind of a good amount by the time I started running again. So that was almost two months later because of the walking, walking does do wonders for your core. And I had, you know, talked to some friends who did PT and things like that about which core exercises you should or shouldn't do, uh, postpartum. So I had been kind of working on those things. I, I commonly referred to my comeback um, as roots before branches. And I just kept reminding myself, work on the little things and come back smart and strong before trying to do other things. So I really focused on building that. And I want to say, you know, around two months when I started running, it was getting better. But I really don't think it came around until the fall when I truly could go for a run comfortably without feeling like I, I could feel something in my core shifting around. And was that just more of, you just needed time, your body just needed time to adjust? Or was it just kind of, it just kind of uh, improved in parallel with your fitness? Um, I think a little bit of both, you know, it definitely just take it, it. Recovery does take time, you know, your body goes through a big trauma, especially I don't even want to say especially because a C-section or a natural delivery, they both come with their share of things. Um, But with a C-section, it just, it definitely takes time. But then also I was doing the walking and the running. I was doing my strength training and a lot of PT exercises. So I think that did help progress it along. But even if I didn't do that, it would have just taken time. So in the fall, you started to kind of start to regain the, the normal feeling back in your body and you, you started to, uh, you know, kind of increase the mileage a little bit, but when did you decide that you actually wanted to run a spring marathon? So I had like Buffalo in my head for a while. Um, when I was still pregnant, I even said, I definitely won't run a fall marathon. If I do, it might be spring. And if I do, I want it to be Buffalo because I would like a, a local ish race. So friends and family can be there. Uh, I, it was important to me that, you know, my people could be there, uh, for such a big return. Um, but I really wasn't sure. And I, I wasn't dead set on it because you just don't know how the return will go. You don't know how fast you'll come back. And, you know, it's, it's a roller coaster. I did really well for a while. And then I ran my first half back in September And then I just kind of ran some 5Ks and I was seeing good progress, but October through the end of the year was a little bit rough. I had started a new job, which was, you know, taking on that plus, you know, pumping exclusively, being a mom, trying to run. It was a little bit overwhelming. So I really had to push that 
backwards, but it was oddly during a week, I pretty much didn't run at all that I decided to register for Buffalo on a whim because I'm a very goal oriented person. So I said, okay, I'm going to register for it. If I don't run it, then I don't run it. But if I do, it'll motivate me through the winter to keep trying at least. And so I registered back in November and said, we'll see how things go. And when the new year came, it was kind of like a switch flipped and all of January, I was able to really get into a good groove. And then when February rolled around, you know, I was about 16 weeks out from the race and I said, okay, let's do this. And I decided to really commit and focus on training for it. And I didn't know what that meant in the terms of, I did not know if I would be shooting for a PR or if I would just be shooting for a Boston qualifier, or if I would just be shooting for a finish. I was prepared to handle any of that, but I wanted to at least try. Now, is that, is that uh, traditionally how you've done it in the past? Are you more of those, were you one of those people who feel like they want to race a lot and then kind of whatever happens to the race happens? Or are you more of like, all right, if I'm racing, I need to be at my best. So for a marathon, I pretty much go into them with a goal. Um, I have not run a marathon just for fun. Well, kind of <laughs> in a while, technically Boston 2016, I was originally going and then didn't because I had found out I was pregnant a few weeks beforehand. Um, and then I, that the fall before that I had paced, uh, one of my best friends, Brittany for her first marathon. But aside from that, pretty much all of my marathons were goal races because it's my favorite distance. But then I always ran 5Ks, 10Ks, five miles, halves. And some of them were goal races, but a lot of them were see what happens. But the main goal was the marathon. Now, speaking about goals, when you were just getting out of college, I read one of your posts about how you were trying to break 20 minutes into 5k. And I thought it was, it was a really, it was a fascinating post that you had on your blog. And in it, you mentioned kind of the, how it differentiated for you, the difference between having big goals versus smaller kind of step-by-step goals. So how, how, how did that experience when you were younger influence how you've approached the marathon? So, I was so naive. (laughs) Um, When I first started running 5Ks, like that was completely new to me. I ran in college, but I ran track and I did not run distance. So, And to be fair, you were an All-American. We can't just say like, oh, you ran track. (laughs) You were an All-American track athlete. I was, yes. But I... But it was still a shift for me to go to distance. You know, I didn't have to pace for a 400 or an 800. Yeah, what was your line? You said, like, if, if your coach said you had to run longer than an 800, you were, like, shooting him daggers or something. Oh, to that yeah. I mean, and it's so funny now because I'm actually still good friends with my college coach. And he just laughs at me every time he sees me. He's like, you used to gripe at me so bad if I had you do anything longer. But it's, you know, that comes with time and age and experience and I didn't want to leave running. And so when I started running 5Ks, I had this notion of where I should be. 
it was this naive sense of entitlement and ego and it took a long time for it to really knock me on my ass and figure out that, Hey, get off your high horse. You're going to have to actually put in some work. And, you know, I ran like a, I don't know. I was running lots of like 21 and 22 minute five K's and maybe 23, couple 23s, which is phenomenal. But I had this time in my head of, Oh, well, I ran 21 minutes this week. I can run 20 minutes next week. Like the concept of a minute seems like a minute when a minute over a 5K, as we were kind of talking about before with Heather's PR, that's a big deal. And it really took me a long time to grasp the fact of celebrate the little goals too, because there were so many races I walked away from disappointed because I didn't meet some pie in the sky goal when really I should have been excited about the consistency or the placing or the fact that it may have been like a one, two second PR or even like 10 or 15 seconds. It took me a lot of time to really grasp that. And, you know, I see it a lot with newer runners and I think it just takes time and, you know, people can tell you all they want, but until you really kind of get hit in the face with it, you're not going to learn that lesson. It usually is when you have to learn the hard way that you can't run for where you should be or where, or where you think you should be. You have to run for where your fitness is, celebrate the small goals and kind of go from there. Yeah. So I got two things out of that when I was reading it. And then as I'm listening to you now, and so I'm just going to throw two things at you, if you don't mind. Uh, one of them is, was part of it just the comparison trap? Where like, you know, as an accomplished college runner, an accomplished high school runner, did you just look at who some of your some of your brethren were doing and say, hey, I should be at that level? Um, and then also, do you feel like you kind of missed out by not celebrating times where shoot, like if you if you bust your ass and work, you know, work your tail off in a race, you know, that's certainly worthy of being celebrated as, you know, no matter how fast you are, whereas sometimes you know, we, we, we get to that last 5%. We don't quite give it all we have. And no matter how good we are, we kind of look back with regret. Oh, I absolutely missed out on celebrating so many successes and so many things that I should have been happier about. Um, and I regret it. But at the same time, I is you got you have to have those times to learn from them. Um, so yeah, I probably would have been a happier person and probably become a better runner faster. But I also learned so much over that time, made me a better runner at this point. Um, I think the comparison trap was part of it. But I was also, at the time, I was, I surrounded myself with some amazing groups of people. And I was like, oh, well, these people are doing this. I should be able to do this. Or it was as simple as somebody making a comment of, oh, you're going to break 21 of these days. You're going to do this. Like people encouraging me and being positive. And I took that to be so literal that I didn't think about it, that that could take a little bit of time to get there. It was like, well, I need to be there now because they're telling me that. And nobody meant any ill will by it, but it was just the way my, my young brain interpreted it. And that's just something you kind of grow up into and grow out of, hopefully. I heard, I forget who it was. Um, I don't know if it was either on my podcast or I'd read it or heard it from somewhere else, but someone 
was talking about goals and they were basically saying when you have a goal you should set it in stone but you should write your timeline in pencil that's a great way to put it and another like similar quote like same concept um and i know i've said this to heather before actually and i said it to myself as well is trying to think of exactly how it's worded it's like be stubborn about your goals but be flexible about the methods um that's a good so, one too. Yeah. So it's not, that one doesn't really go through the timeline, but the biggest thing is there is no one right way, especially with running to achieve a goal. You know, I know a lot of people who have run sub three hour marathons that couldn't do it without running a lot more mileage than I do. I'm technically, cons- I mean, by most standards, a low mileage runner for a sub three hour marathoner. But then I know people who run way more miles than me that are struggling to reach their goals when maybe if they backed off, like there's no one right way to reach a goal, whether it be your mileage, the style of workouts, everybody is so different. And, you know, with the timeline aspect, I think it comes down to making sure that you're setting your own goals, you know, and it's very hard, especially when you get up to the marathon distance, it's very easy to let the, such as like the BAA standard for the Boston Marathon. It's easy to let that dictate your goals. And I did it for a long time. My first few marathons, it was like, if I didn't be, what was the point? And once I finally did qualify for Boston at my fourth marathon, um, I realized that I had been letting this random organization dictate my goals and set limits for myself. And all of a sudden, I had opened this whole new world of, I still have so much more I could do. Why am I letting this limit me? So I think it's just so important to set your own goals. You know, I didn't need people telling me that I could run sub 20, even if they meant well by it. You know, I needed to find a goal for myself. And even now I have to set my own goals. I do have goals that are kind of dictated by other people or organizations, but I also know that at the end of the day, the only goals that define me are the ones that I'm going to set for myself and work towards. That's really well said. And you were actually the first guest on Lindsay Hines. I'll have another podcast. And you spoke about that. You and Lindsay did extensively. And I thought it, it works in both directions, right? You just mentioned that for you, the BAA standard was kind of like almost like a governor on your engine, right? It was kind of holding you back in a way because you're focusing on something that maybe in the long term you were capable of, of far exceeding. But I think it also works the other way where you have, I'll just use myself as an example, about 3.30 wouldn't get me into the Boston Marathon. That was a goal of mine for the marathons. And in all actuality, that was probably me shooting too high. So I had basically let myself say, okay, I want to do this, but that's probably not what my body was able to do. So it can be not only a governor on some for some people but it can maybe be an unrealistic expectation for others and um it, it's uh, its effect on your ability to perform is is equal in terms of it whether it's holding you back or making you feel bad about a performance it's just ultimately kind of handicapping you from reaching your full potential oh totally agree and you know especially with the rise of social media and things like that, especially when it comes to like Boston and the trial standards and things like that, 
you see all these people setting amazing pie in the sky goals and it's incredible. I would never tell someone to stop dreaming big and setting goals, but sometimes they get so excited that they're setting goals that I don't because you never know what could happen. I never thought I would be, you know, a 257 marathoner. You know, I have friends first marathon was over four hours and they've qualified for the Olympic trials. So you just really, right. never and yours know. was what? 343 was your first marathon. 346. Okay. So sorry. I mean, even, yeah, even, <laughs> even higher. Yeah. So it's, you know, you just never really know. Um, but I see people setting goals and there's times when I would love to just like grab them by the shoulders and sh shake them and say, set a smaller goal first or set a series of goals to get yourself there just so that way you still have something to celebrate along the way because you know that goal is one day like for me the marathon on Sunday was a huge goal but I'm more happy with or more like pleased with the outcome and the journey of the way I went about it and the little goals that I set for myself along the way this year to get to that point. So that makes it even better because I get to celebrate even more things. So to the people out there who are running over four hours and saying, well, I want to qualify for Boston or I want to run the trials. I just want to say, Hey, look at where you are now, because you just say you just ran like a 420 marathon. That's awesome. You finished a marathon. You ran a marathon faster than a lot of people. Give yourself a little goal, chip away at it and celebrate the successes that you have and then keep setting goals. Goal setting's fun. So set one, reach it, set another one, but don't limit yourself or don't, don't make it impossible for you to succeed. We tend to hold ourselves. I mean, it's a human trait. We set ourselves up for failure. You know, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop or, you know, we're self-sabotaging, but I see it so much and I used to do it and I still do occasionally. So I get it. But, you know, it's, it's hard to watch these people setting these unrealistic goals when they could be so much more happy and successful if they gave themselves a little bit more of a, of a break. And it's a very different thing when you're setting stretch goals for a marathon as opposed to a 5K. Because you, run, you do it in a marathon and all of a sudden it's abnormally hot and you don't have this stretch goal now becomes an impossible goal. And you just spent six months on it and then you're going to spend yeah. like six weeks recovering. And all of a sudden you can, you know, so you basically spent half a year thinking about this one thing that ultimately became even in the best of circumstances an impossibility simply because of fluke weather. Right. So it's oh, like, yeah. so like a marathon goal is so darn tough because there's so much of it that isn't in your control. And then all of a sudden you're wrapped up in something that isn't related to did I push as hard as I could? If I'm introspective after the race, can I say, hey, when times were tough, did I battle through or did I give in? You know, and we all have those moments where we think we've given it at all. But in retrospect, out of the fact, we say, you know what? I probably could have given a little more. And those are the things that I think that, you know, and who am I to say? But I feel like that ultimately that's where the rubber meets the road of how was your race? It's, it's those moments as opposed mm -hmm. to the time. Yeah, it, especially the longer distance races. And I say this again, as somebody who the marathon is my favorite distance, but I've learned the longer the race, the more goals you need to set along the way and for the race. You know, like you said, for a 5K, 
it doesn't take as much training. It's still a very hard effort. It's still a lot of work. I'm not downplaying that whatsoever, but it's definitely easier to bounce back from that. And it's a much shorter time period that you need to worry about things that are outside of your control. So if I'm setting a goal for a 5k, it's definitely more of a smaller window of maybe a few seconds that I'm looking at a goal. But if I'm setting a goal for a marathon, even this past weekend, my range was pretty big for those goals because I'm like, you just never know what can happen. And that's why I was so adamant about setting goals along the way and different checkpoints, because if I got to Sunday and that heat bothered me more than it did, then I didn't want this entire last few months to be a waste. I wanted to still be able to look back and be proud of it. And I can do that. And obviously I can because I had a great day and I was able to push through and come home with a PR and a win and all of those things. So I guess it sounds like it's easy for me to say. But so I who, do you, who are you, Laura? <laughs> you won the darn race. <laughs> but having been there where I've, you know, not met my goal, but able to find positives either in the day or in the process I've learned a lot over the years. I have races where I fell short, but I took it and I learned from, learn from your mistakes. There are always things you can do better. And, you know, I 100% consider myself a student of the sport. I am always trying to learn more about running, about the running community, about training, not just for myself, but in general to help others and to be a part of this community. But yeah, definitely for myself. What are better ways? Is there better nutrition I can do? You know, what if I tried this pacing method or that? And there's always things you can tweak and do better. Even after a great race, I'm still sitting here looking back and going, okay, so what can I use going forward to learn and get even better? And you mentioned earlier, and I'd heard this on Lindsay's podcast as well, and you've chronicled it in your writings, that you are, at least relatively speaking, a low mileage runner for someone of your race times. In fact, I think it was, what, 2014 was the first time you'd done 200 miles in a month? Yep. <laughs> so how, does, how did you come across this as what's a best fit for you, and what does low mileage mean exactly? So mileage is so relative and I get kind of defensive about it because everybody's got their own low and high mileage. I can say my mileage is 50 and somebody could say that's low and somebody could say that's high. Everybody is very different with it. Um, I just, part of my lack of mileage for the first few years that I was running road races wasn't on purpose. It was just that I didn't know any better and I wasn't making the effort to learn what acting meant, actual training looked like. Um, and I wasn't necessarily the most accountable to myself. And then probably around 2012 was when I really started being more consistent. But even then I still wasn't running crazy mileage, but I was running consistent. Um, I, for a while, I couldn't even hit 50 miles in a week without feeling like it destroyed me. You know, some people can run that without even breaking a sweat. And now I'm at the point where, yeah, 50 miles isn't really a huge deal for me. I mean, it was when I first started hitting it coming back after Hannah, obviously. But it's, it's a different 
number for everybody. And I especially think when your paces are different, especially for some slower runners, um, it's that time on the feet. There's a big difference between a seven minute, somebody who averages seven minute miles for 50 miles a week and somebody who averages 10 or 11 minute miles for 50 miles a week. That's a huge time on feet difference. Um, I've just found for me that I'm not opposed to pushing my mileage. It's just not something that interests me. I love numbers and I'm a data nerd, but I try not to get too wrapped up in needing to constantly beat myself up about my mileage. I ran my first sub three hour marathon off of an average of 49 miles a week. I think my peak was around 64. And I think that was the only time that training cycle that I even hit over 60. And then this training cycle, I averaged a little under 53 miles and I had a couple weeks in the sixties. Um, it's, I've, you know, I've hit seventies before in like 2015 before I got pregnant and I was probably averaging in the upper fifties, high six or in low sixties for then. And that worked really good for me, but for some people that's really low mileage, especially for a marathoner, but it miles aren't everything and miles aren't the only way to get faster. I'm, I think miles and weight tend to be overemphasized. Some people think that the only way to get faster is to run more miles. And some people think that the only way to get faster is to lose weight. And I don't believe either of those things. Right. I, I appreciate you bringing up the weight perspective. Obviously there's certain amounts, like, like I'll take me for an example. Like I know I'm not at my optimum weight. I know what my optimum weight is. I know when I'm there and when I'm not there. So obviously if I'm not at my optimum weight, I probably could stand to lose a couple pounds. With that being said, it's not like we're, you know, you're a triathlete, you know what it's like to be on a bike. You know, weight is a much bigger deal in cycling than it is for running. Like, mm -hmm. especially if you're going up hills, you know, it's well chronicled for people who are Tour de France fires and things like that. Like weight is a massive variable when you're oh, yeah. going up a mountain. Anyone who's gone uphill on a bike knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's the worst thing in the world. Um, as opposed to going downhill, which is great on a bike. But, um, no, I, I totally get what you're saying. And also, you know, you're you're not just a runner, right? I mean, you have, you have two jobs and you're a mom. So what does the daily schedule look like for you? Let's just go back through this training cycle. So say it's, you know, the, the, the 16 weeks leading up to Buffalo. What's a, what's a typical like Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday look like from a time perspective? Um, you know, how much sleep are you getting and when are you getting your miles in versus work versus all of that? So every day of the week is kind of different, um, just based on who watches our daughter. So, but they kind of follow a pattern Mondays and Fridays. Uh, my mother-in-law has Hannah and I'm, I'm in charge of drop off those days, but I don't have to pick her up. So Mondays and Fridays, I usually get to run right after work, which is nice because I'm not running super late. And most of the time, if it's not a, like anything longer than an hour, I can get my run done before Brian and Hannah get home. So then we still have the evening to have our time together. Um, so, you know, those days are definitely helpful. Um, Tuesdays, he's usually home with her. So the, um, those are the days where I would use their... Um, 
get up super early and go to the gym at like five or six in the morning before work because he was home with her. So I could do that and get it out of the way. Or I would run after work and while he could still obviously be with her. It's hard in the winter because I couldn't run with her in the stroller. And with this flu season being as bad as it was, we were a little bit more hesitant to take her to the YMCA because of child watch and exposure. Um, I'm I'm not... I shouldn't say deathly afraid. I'm like, I'm like completely ruled that out. I'm like, my kids are going to get sick. I'm just like, this is like one step forward, two steps back. I don't even like consider that as an option, probably to my detriment, but I've just been like, oh, forget it. I don't even, I don't even go down that route. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, we definitely took her, but we were really cautious, especially because she was still under a year old and their immune systems are just so weak at that point. So I think that limited me a little bit through this training cycle. And I don't mean that in a bad way because I would rather take care of her and make sure she's healthy because Um, Wednesdays and Thursdays were the more up in the air days where a lot of times I was running late at night, um, at least until the weather broke. But usually on those days, I'm in charge of drop off and pick up. So Um, a lot of times I chose to wait until eight or nine o'clock at night to go to the gym to run because I didn't want to miss that time in the evening with her and with us as a family. So the amount of times I did night runs and got to know the (laughs) night staff at the YMCA, it's not ideal, but you made it happen. And once the weather got a little bit better, Wednesdays, my best friend watches Hannah, um, And a lot of times she was great. And, you know, I would go there and run on her treadmill or run house and she would, I saved my workouts for those days. So if I was going to miss time with Hannah, it needed to be for a long run. It needed to be for a key piece. Otherwise I wasn't going to miss time with her for just an easier recovery run. Those can wait until she's in bed. So would you do a structured workout on the treadmill? plenty of times i love the treadmill i'm really like that so you went from i only run 400 meters to my the marathon is my favorite run and i will do workouts on the treadmill you this is like an unbelievable conversion and pigs fly (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly um so what are some examples of workouts you do on the treadmill like i don't even i'm one of those people who like again this isn't about me but just for comparison's sake i i feel like if i run eight miles say eight minute miles on the road for me that's like the equivalent of like a nine minute mile on the treadmill in terms of effort so do you feel like you have to alter it a little bit when you do a workout on the treadmill versus if you just did it on normal like some say normal let's say like say it's 40 50 degrees outside and you know it's clear running conditions um i mean i definitely alter but i don't look at it as that i have to i look at it as a good opportunity to alter it say the treadmill is a great tool for learning progression runs. I am a big, you know, proponent of the like negative splitting. The treadmill is an awesome tool. Start really slow and just slowly ramp it up every few minutes. Like it's a great way to teach your body to negative split or, you know, doing a workout on the treadmill. It's like, oh, it's 80 degrees in the gym. 
guess what? There's a really good chance your goal race in the spring or summer is going to be 80 degrees. So this is good training for that. So I try not to look at it as I have to alter it or I have to do this. I look at it as how is this going to help me for whatever may come on race day. And I can pretty much guarantee you that some of those night runs outside because the night is more humid or a lot of those hot gym treadmill runs, I guarantee those helped me uh, battled the conditions a little bit more on Sunday because I was a little bit more prepared for that heat than I would have been otherwise coming off of an upstate New York winter. That is a great point. That is a great point. And what's a, uh, how do you typically structure your weeks? Do you feel like you do like one long run with two kind of two structured workout days or what's kind of the normal schedule? It kind of depends on where in training I am, Um, you know, earlier on in the training cycle, when I'm focusing on a little bit more speed and power, I'm more likely to do maybe two workouts during the week in a long run, except for like on a recovery week where I'll do maybe a a scaled back workout and a scaled back long run. Um, When I get more into marathon specific, there's usually one more of a tempo run. And then maybe some intervals or maybe do like a progression or a steady state run and a long run. I don't have like a set schedule, but there's usually three key workouts a week, whether it be, and I would consider an easy long run workout because that takes more out of you than a regular easy run. So there's usually two to three runs a week that I make sure that I'm Got it. Well, thank you so much, Laura. This has been absolutely fantastic. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm going to do a couple quick questions uh, like I do for every episode uh, before we get going. But again, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. We kind of scheduled this last minute and I really appreciate the flexibility. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So when you're running, are you going headphones or no headphones? Not for a race, but for training. On the treadmill, headphones... Most of the time, if I'm not on the treadmill, I'm not using headphones, though, because I prefer to be a little bit more aware. Okay. And so if you're on the treadmill, got the headphones on, what are you listening to? Everything. I have country. I have rock. You're going to get some Pony by Genuine. You're going to get a little bit of everything on there. Oh, my God. Pony by Genuine. That is going back. I feel like I feel like I'm talking to Tom Haverford from Parks and Rec right now, like the biggest <laughs> genuine fan ever. Um, no, that's great. Um, so do, do you vary it up depending on the workout you're doing? Like, all right, I'm doing something a little faster. I'll have like more of a beat or is it just on shuffle? Yeah, definitely. Like for my workout days, I have like more playlists that are geared for songs that I just know amp me up, you know, more upbeat stuff. My easy and recovery runs, that's more likely when I'm listening to like the Rambling Runner podcast or Lindsay Hines podcast or Serial or something like that, or maybe just some lighter music random shuffle on Amazon music or whatever. But for my workouts, I have playlists of like set songs that I know will keep me going. Got it. All right. So you, you know, you motivate me as a runner. I was, that's part of the reason I was like, so, so excited to have you on this show, but who motivates you as a runner? My friends and my family, um, runners or non-runners, but, you know, seeing my friends out there, kicking ass and taking even their setbacks in stride and coming back, you know, Heather coming back and, you know, running 
the times that she's running now and seeing her progression and her confidence. You know, I ran Brittany's first marathon with her and I can't tell you how much that inspired and motivated me being around to experience that with her and experience it from the other side. Um, one of my other best friends has been on a run streak for a few years now and just everybody's got their different motivation and goals. So I love seeing people that I care about going after what matters to them. You know, they don't feel like they have to go after what everybody, what we're all doing, but we can still support each other with similar goals, different goals. The people that I care about doing what makes them happy makes me happy and inspires me. That's really well said. It reminds me of a post you had when you went to the Boston Marathon this year. And, you, and I think it was something to the effect of, why am I at the Boston Marathon this year when I'm not even running? And basically it was because of the people. It's all these people that I've grown, uh, grown to love and have become part, big parts of my life. Oh, absolutely. The people are what makes running best. I mean, especially at a place like Boston, being able to be around all of my friends and you know, seeing Lindsay, seeing Michelle, being with Brittany and showing that to Brian and seeing Heather and James and all of these people and, you know, watching Desi come around the corner. And it's funny because I remember right on the corner of uh, Hereford and Boylston and watched Desi make that last turn. And in a way, I kind of felt that way when I made that last turn on Sunday of that's when it became real. You hit that last turn. There's nothing left. You just need to go straight forward. And being there for that, it's, it's incredible. Even if it's somebody you don't know, and obviously I don't know Desi. I've never met her, but you can invest yourself and care about people and be around these people who half of those spectators out there don't run, but they're still there cheering and drinking and having a good time because that's just what you do. And that's what the running community is, whether you run or not, or if you're just a volunteer or a spectator, the, the people are what makes running what it is. The people at the finish line, the people at the start line, the people who are handing you water when it's 90 degrees and you just want to stop and sit on the curb and they're encouraging you to go. You know, we've, we've all had those races where the volunteer made or broke it. And that's what makes running running. There you go. All right. So what's the best advice that you give others but have trouble following? <laughs> um, it used to be slow down on your easy days, but I actually am really good about that now. Um, hmm. Don't be so hard on yourself. I think I definitely have a hard time with that one, but it's very easy for me to tell people, hey, stop, take a step back, look at all you've done to get where you are don't be so hard on yourself. But at the same time, I will turn around 30 seconds later and be like, damn it. Like about something that I did. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm really bad about that. Yeah. I, I, I completely hear you on that one. I know I, I fall into that trap all the time. Um, all right. So if you could run one more race the rest of your life, uh, but you could run it every year, what would it be? Hmm. Well, I guess it should be Buffalo Marathon from here on out, but, and I don't say this for the cliche way of because it's Boston, but I would probably say Boston, but for the reasons that we were talking about of the experience and the people, it's just, it's a city and a race that brings everybody together. It's not because of an elitist thing or 
I'm better because I run fast and everywhere, this or that. It's, it's what that experience and that weekend and bringing everybody together means. So I, I would definitely say Boston for that reason. Right. It, it kind of harkens back to the last time you ran it. Like you weren't running for a goal. You were pregnant at the time, but still had a great experience. Exactly. You just, you take what the day gives you, but even if you have a bad time on that course, like you're still running in Boston, you're still surrounded by a million spectators, regardless of the weather who are still out there and cheering and the magic and the mysticness. And some people don't care about Boston and that's totally fine. It's totally a personal thing. But for me, that city and that race, it's, it's incredible. And a big part of that is just the people that it brings together. All right, two more. So what is your biggest bucket list race? Um, oh, I would say there's a marathon in France run at Mont Saint-Michel, which is actually my favorite place in the world. So that's definitely high on the bucket list race. Oh, a little running vacation? Yeah. A little running what do they call it? Running, running tourism? Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. I used to set like so many bucket list goal races and now I'm like, okay, I have some on the list, but no, there's no like priority of them. It's just, if I get to run it, great. There you go. All right. Last one. Who is your dream running partner? Hmm. Oh, I, well, she already is your running partner. She is my running partner. You're exactly. living. You're living the dream. I am living the dream. I I don't care if she's a runner. To be very honest, when she grows up, I would never force it on her. If she but if she wants to run with me, I would absolutely love that. Right now, I get to kind of force her to run with me in the stroller. <laughs> but she loves she loves being in the stroller, and I love being able to share that with her. So if that's something that we can share for many years to come, then there would be nothing that I'd love more. There you go. So there it is. That's a great way to end it. You are living the dream in more ways than one. Congratulations at the Buffalo Marathon. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a great night, Laura. You too. Thank you, Laura, for coming on the show. This was an absolute blast. And thank you, the listener, for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, Anytime that you have a chance to share this episode or send me a DM either on Instagram or over on Facebook, uh, just know that it warms my heart. I love all the interaction and I love that you like the show and that you listen to it. It's something that uh, I would do anyway, even if no one was listening, but to see that it's connecting with people, uh, it really does warm my heart. I say it every week, but it's true. So I have to repeat it. So uh, if you do want to do something for the show, you can go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, rate and review the episode. It might seem like a small thing, but it helps. It helps other people find the show. Uh, it helps potentially bring in sponsorships for the show, which is always nice. And lastly, it just shows uh, what you think of the show. It's also a place, uh, if you do have some constructive criticism, you can just send it to me or you can write a review. Uh, in fact, I once got a review that said, hey, the audio goes up and down. Your audio is louder than your guests sometimes, and it's hard to listen to. And that really helped. It helped improve the show. I made the alterations, and hopefully the show is better for it. Anyway, I don't want to focus on the negative. Let's focus on the positive. Laura Anderson, what a great interview. She is such a special person, and I couldn't be more thankful that she wanted to be on the show. So anyway, I hope you're having a great day. Happy running, and I'll see you again next week.